Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health. This week you're going to hear a conversation between Courtney and Dr. Emily Atkins from the George Institute in Sydney. Emily is a cardiovascular health researcher and Courtney found some time on a recent trip to Sydney to sit down and find out a bit more about the sort of work that Emily is currently doing. I think you'll agree it's an interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it. Hello everyone and welcome to the Meaning of Health podcast. My name is Courtney and today we don't have Craig with us because I am in Sydney. So unfortunately Craig won't be joining us but you will hear him in the other episodes so it's okay. Now today here I have a fantastic person with me. She's really lovely. Her name is Emily Atkins and do you want to introduce yourself Emily? Yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Dr. Emily Atkins. I'm a research fellow at the George Institute and I look at how we use cardiovascular medicines in Australia and overseas and how we might use them better. Excellent. All right. So how did you get a job at the George? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. So in the final weeks of writing up my PhD, uh-huh. the um, postdoc fellowship at the George was advertised and my supervisor sent me an email and said, hey, you should apply for this. Up until that point, I hadn't really given a lot of consideration to what I would do after my PhD. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I'll just give it a <laughs> shot and see how it goes. Um, and within a month, I'd done an interview. We had a second interview scheduled. And that second interview seemed to be more of a planning to-do list than an actual interview. Mm-hmm. And a month later, I was moving across the country. <laughs> that is pretty cool. So, okay, so you've, you've done your PhD and that's in cardiovascular disease, right? Yeah. So very quickly, two sentences on what your PhD is on. Oh, so I looked at the cost effectiveness of uh, secondary prevention medicines following heart attack and stroke using linked data in WA. Okay, and did that help you? Um, get like the job oh, yeah. that you got here and also Absolutely. like in terms of like the, the content as well was yeah. it you working on similar things so um, while my fellow my postdoc position wasn't using linked health data mm-hmm. uh, having that background training and familiarity with statistics cardiovascular medicine more generally was very useful for um, this position also Having that skill set and economic evaluation was a, a bonus. Um, it's always better to have more skills than you need for a particular job and you can sort of adapt it into what you want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, and what's your official title here? That's Do you a know? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I am a National Heart Foundation Australia Postdoctoral Research Fellow. I am also a research fellow of the George Institute for Global Health Australia. I am a conjoint senior lecturer (laughs) at UNSW Sydney and an honorary research fellow in the Western Sydney um, Medical School. Okay. University of Sydney, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Just a few. Yeah, okay. So you've kind of covered a lot of areas there but the theme that I'm sensing is research fellow yes um and 
mostly in cardiovascular disease and yep. drugs and things like that. That's right. Why did you decide on cardiovascular disease? Uh, that was... You just fell into it? I wanted to learn how to do economic evaluation and that was the project that had the economic evaluation. Yeah, so okay. up until that point I hadn't really um, thought about cardiovascular disease. Um, my honours project was obesity surgery and I'd been working as a research assistant in um, neurology mm -hmm. looking at dementia and I just wanted to learn how to do linked data analysis and economic evaluation and this project was in the book. <laughs> yep. Um, and then I, I met with um, Tom Briffer and Liz Gilhode and, and talked to them about the project and it seemed like a good fit for the methods that I wanted to learn. And so once I got in into the project, probably by my second year, uh, cardiovascular was it. That was what I wanted to do. I, that's where I saw we had medicines that work, a stupidly large burden of disease, so heaps of room for improvement and um, potentially with quite cost-effective strategies. Yeah, awesome. So um, one thing that um, I'll just mention now is this is all at the School of Population Global Health at the University of Western Australia, which is where Craig and I are uh, from as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I completely agree. Um, as some of our listeners know, that I'm in the cardiovascular field as well, and it's it's a very big area of growth. So, yeah, yeah, that's mm. pretty fantastic. Um, okay, so what are you currently working on now? I'm working on a number of projects at the moment. Um, I'm doing a clinical trial of a um, blood pressure lowering medicine that's a combination of four existing drugs at quarter dose. Um, we've been doing this trial for a couple of years now. We've got a couple of sites in Perth recruiting. So if you have high blood pressure, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can put a, a link up for um you to uh, have a look at the trial details and see if you're eligible. Absolutely. Um, so that trial's underway. I'm in the process of developing up another two trials. Um, one is an international trial of medication adherence clubs for low resource settings for improving um, use of antihypertensive medication. Um, the other one I'm looking at is a local study using dose administration aids to improve adherence for cardiovascular medicines. Okay. All right. Let's focus on the first one. Um, now, because this is a, a fairly uh, casual uh, podcast, can you just explain to us why blood pressure is important? So um, high blood pressure is the leading modifiable risk factor for global burden of disease. That's pretty important. Yes. <laughs> and um, I think it's, oh, I haven't got the stats in my head. That's fine. Um, it is um, a high proportion of Australian adults uh, do have high blood pressure and also it's only about half have their um, high blood pressure adequately treated. So we've got um, room for improvement there where we can prevent cardiovascular events quite easily with existing medicines that are cheap and available. Right. So so really we've got a population of people where a huge proportion of them have bl high blood pressure and a huge proportion of those people are not doing anything about it. Or not 
or not enough about not it. Not doing enough about it. Okay. So, so why would ha- someone have high blood pressure? What are the risk factors? No? Nope. No? <laughs> not a good question? <laughs> not a good question. No, okay. Um, so we don't really know what causes high blood pressure. Oh, that means life. it is a good question because we don't um, know what causes it. <laughs> um, it. It tends to happen as people get older. Yeah. Um, there are... Lots of things that are associated with it, mm-hmm. drag causal pathways are a bit mysterious. Ah, okay. So that's another future research area. Then. Somebody else's <laughs> <Someone> research. Else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we don't really know what, what causes it per se, but there's a lot of consequences because of yes. blood pressure. So what are, what are some of those consequences? Uh, so high blood pressure is uh, a major cause of stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also strongly associated with heart attack. Um, long-term exposure to high blood pressure has also been associated with um, cognitive impairment and dementia. Um, and uh, down the track, it can also be um, associated with kidney disease. So there's lots of different consequences, not just cardiovascular disease. Blood pressure kind of affects everything within your body. Um, so, okay, so your project is developing a, a clinical trial for, what was it again? We're um, running a clinical trial yep. for um, a low-dose combination of four blood pressure-lowering drugs at quarter dose. Okay, so so you're combining four different drugs. So what's the what's the theory behind that? Why would you do that? Um, so for many blood pressure lowering drugs, the dose response curve isn't a one to one relationship. So okay, wait wait a minute. Okay, what's the dose response curve? <laughs> so um, if you start with a standard dose of one blood blood pressure lowering drugs, so mm-hmm. it would say that's a hundred percent. Half of that would probably have about eighty percent of the efficacy of a full dose. Right. Not okay. Fifty percent, which is what we would intuitively think it would yeah. be. Yeah. So it's not a straight line. It's it's, it's a curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Cool. Uh, so at a quarter dose, we expect to have about sixty percent of the efficacy of a full dose. But when we look at the side effects, they're practically zero. Right. So when we look at um, a standard dose of blood pressure lowering drug, we do see side effects. Um, you double that dose, you get a substantial increase in the side effects without much extra blood pressure reduction. So likewise, if we go the other way, if we're looking at a quarter dose, we get pretty much nil in terms of side effects. One of the things that we do know about blood pressure lowering drugs is we have different classes and those different classes act on different parts of the blood pressure pathway. So you can use multiple drugs in combination and get better blood pressure lowering reductions. So the idea is if we use four different classes of drug at quarter dose, yet 60% plus 60% plus 60% plus 60% and you get a much greater blood pressure reduction than you would with usual care and not as many side effects. Right. 
problems. That's what we're testing. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll we'll see eventually if that's true or not. Awesome. Okay, so that's really interesting then. Um, So one of the exciting things about this project, though, is the um, NHLBI in the United States has funded a sister trial replicating our strategy. So that's just started recruiting in Chicago. Okay. So in a, in a few years, we'll be able to do the IPD meta-analysis and answer the question completely. That is awesome. That is really, really cool. Um, okay, so so this is a clinical trial. So did you set up the clinical trial? Was that your job? or? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the original funding application went in when I first started at the George. So... Um, that was led by Professor Clara Chow at University of Sydney uh, in collaboration with a number of investigators around Australia. And so my first day was reading through that application before we submitted it. Um, from there, when we got the funding, I started working on uh, developing the case report form. So which, what data we wanted to collect it, how we wanted to collect it. Um, then also uh, contacting a company to manufacture our capsules for testing. Um, and from there, you know, database build, recruiting sites, training. Um, so training our site staff who are on the ground on um, our database, how to enter the data, how to complete the CRFs how to measure blood pressure, um, sort of that whole aspect of it. Um, and now we're a few years into the study. It's um, checking data quality, looking at how we're tracking in terms of recruitment, coming up with strategies of how we can find some new patients to recruit into the trial. Um, so it's been quite a varied role yeah. and it's been a fantastic learning experience of how, how do we come up with new, new medicines? How do we test that they work? It's um, been very good training. Yeah, awesome. So, okay, so you, you've got a bunch of different sites, I guess. Is it Australia-wide or? Uh, nearly Australia-wide. We don't have anyone in South Australia, Northern Territory or Queensland. So we've got New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and Western Australia. Okay. And and um, I guess how many sites do you have? So do you have um, public hospitals and private uh, or what's the what's the scope of okay. the so recruitment? So we have 10 sites. Yeah. Um, some are hospital-based, some are university-based, uh, some are primary care-based. So we have... Um, a mixture, um, so we've got Chris Reed at Curtin University, who would be a university site. Um, they bring in um, people to the um, CRE there. Uh, in Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, um, Royal Perth Hospital, it's a, it's a hospital clinic that the trial's running through. Um, here in Sydney, we have a couple of general practices who are screening their patients and and putting them in the trial if they're eligible. So it's a bit of a mixture. Um, And I guess that sort of reflects the collaborative nature of doing clinical trials in Australia. It's, um, in particular, cardiovascular trials. It's um, 
a very collaborative process and um I think that's a nice thing. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I think it's very good to have kind of a, a varied group of people that you're looking at. And how do you, how do they choose the patients that are selected for this project? Okay. So for this trial, we're looking for people who have high blood pressure, who are on no medication or only one. If they're on no medication with classify their high blood pressure is greater than 140 over 90. Um, and what's the normal blood pressure? 120 over 80. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, for the people who are on one medication, we'd be looking at blood pressure over 130. And it just reflects the um, National Heart Foundation guidelines that if you're Treated for high blood pressure, you should be aiming for a target of 120. So 130 is still a bit high. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. And um, so you've, you've selected these patients. Are you, are you comparing them to people or how are you going to measure your results, I guess? <laughs> yeah. So once we um, recruit a patient into the trial and we get their informed consent, uh, they are randomised and the um, Randomization allocates them to our quad pill or our standard dose of one drug, which is usual care. Um, our control group, that standard dose of one drug, that capsule is manufactured to look the same as the quad pill. Um, so it's completely blinded. Um, the patient doesn't know which arm they're in. Their doctor doesn't know which arm they're in. We don't know which arm they're in. Um, until the end of the study when we're all unblinded. So uh, at this point, we're, we're still in the blinded phase, so they'll come back six weeks, 12 weeks, six months, 12 months, have their blood pressure measured. We ask them if they're experiencing any side effects. Um, we do blood tests if they're needed. And um, then when we've finished the trial, we'll have our intervention versus control comparison so we'll be able to see uh, what the effect was cool okay so the main i guess the main outcome is risk factors right so i'm sorry not risk factors side effects that's what i was thinking of so side effects of this this drug that's kind of one of the main things you're looking at so our primary outcome is the blood pressure change of course yep yeah okay um and then we have Secondary outcomes, which include um, a few different ways of looking at um, blood pressure. So um, blood pressure control, 24-hour uh, ambulatory blood pressure, which is um, a, a different kind of blood pressure measure, I guess. Uh, we also look at the um, adherence, the acceptability. So we ask patients if if they um, found the capsules easy to use. Um, and then we ask about the tolerability and side effects. So if there was anything that was troubling them. Um, and then I also built in the economic evaluation because why not? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to know. Yeah. Uh, okay. And so this, this trial is still running. When are you expecting for patients to be finished, I guess? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I think we'll be finishing the trial next year. Okay. Towards the end of the year, so it's probably 
um, probably the year after that we publish the results. Yeah, all right. Okay, so that's that's just one project that yes. you're looking at. Of about 12. <laughs> of about 12, that's right. The other one that I thought was very interesting was um, the seasonality that you're looking at. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're doing a project on blood pressure and seasonality. Mm-hmm. How did that even come about? Okay, so um, the, the project... Oh, I guess the idea started when um, I was reading a paper from the U.S. veterans um, that was a, a program of trying to improve blood pressure control in U.S. veterans and so some different strategies. But I noticed in one of the figures that while there was a fairly um, good uh, curve showing improvement in blood pressure control, over, um, I think it was about 10 years, there were little bumps every year. And so it was like a wiggly curve. (laughs) And this little bump followed each year. There was a little bump for each year. Why is that? So I um, started looking into what this um, annual trend in blood pressure control was. And it turns out that in winter, when it is colder, your blood pressure goes up. (laughs) In summer, when it's hot, your blood pressure goes down. And this has been described to some extent in the Northern Hemisphere and particularly in very cold places. And I thought, is this a thing? Is this something that only happens in snowy places or is this something that also happens in Australia? So I um, applied to NPS Medicine Insight for um, an extract of their data, um, which was everyone with a blood pressure measurement between, uh, I think, 2010 and 2017. Okay, that's a lot of data. It's (laughs) 2.6 million people. Um, Wow, okay. Yeah. So, um, yay, big data. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I started looking at um, the blood pressure profile of this um, rather large sample uh, across time. Mm -hmm. And and we absolutely see this relationship between... um, blood pressure and time of year and so the obvious next step is link it to Bureau of Meteorology observations. Yep. So I did that and um, temperature does have a um, a role to play in this in this relationship and you, if you look at for example the people in my data set from Northern Territory where there's not a huge amount of fluctuation in the temperature across the year. Um, the blood pressure stays a bit smoother across the year. There's not as much uh, seasonal variation. Mm-hmm. If you look at Tasmania, um, it's obviously a, our colder place um, and the average blood pressure is a bit higher and you do see that, that relationship pan out. 
the really fascinating one is South Australia. Okay. So if you have a, a you know picture the map of South Australia, and we've got that big desert. Yep. And then it's it's on the south coast, right? So it gets the cold fronts. So we have quite large variation in the temperature across the year. And likewise, quite a bit of variation in the blood pressure. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's that's crazy. So do we know why? Well, it's basic physiology. When you're hot, your blood vessels dilate mm -hmm. to help you cool down. And the opposite happens when you're cold. Your your blood vessels constrict you. Your fingernails start to go blue and your lips do. It's... Um, it's just a, a basic response to the environment that you're in. There you go. See, I would have thought, and this is just going off a limb, off on a limb here. <laughs> I would have thought that, you know, because people evolve over time. There's adaptations and things mm -hmm. like that. I, w I would have thought if you um, had been living in an area for a certain amount of time, that you would have adapted to it. So, for example, Australians are used to being very hot, I guess, um, and your body would have adapted to that eventually, but apparently not. No. Yeah. Um, wow. So I guess the the next thing is, oh, there's not really any recognition of this phenomenon in our current blood pressure guidelines. Um, so there may be some implications around that, that if you're, for example, if you get diagnosed with high blood pressure in spring and you start your treatment as the temperature is getting warmer and your blood pressure is already coming down because of that increase in temperature, as across that summer you might be fine, you might be in blood pressure control, but as the temperature starts to cool off again, you might find that actually you're not adequately treated and your blood pressure is high across the winter. Right. So what you're saying is if we have high blood pressure over winter, we need to take a holiday. Myrtle Beach. <laughs> <laughs> Summer holidays for everyone. That's right. That, that is the treatment of choice. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, so this is something that might actually need to be considered in guidelines as seasonal treatment. Yeah. Um, and would this potentially affect the numbers of, because of, we've got like a certain amount of our population that are affected by blood pressure. Yeah. So would the, I guess, the adjustment of seasons actually change that number? Is it that significant? Ooh, that's a good question. Um. So the seasonal variation, at, you know, across this 2.6 million people uh, on average is, I think, about three millimetres. So it's a, it's, a, it's a shift in the normal curve mm -hmm. um, and it's a shift in the normal curve at that, at that point where most people are. So there will be um, potentially some shift in... The, the number of people um, who would need treatment. But there doesn't seem to be a seasonal pattern in the identification of high blood pressure. Okay. Um, so maybe, maybe not. Um, the other implication that I think 
may need to be considered is during heat waves, mm. whether there needs to be um, a seasonal adjustment during those periods where you have multiple mm. days above 40 degrees where intensive blood pressure lowering therapy may may be potentially harmful. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting and I think that's particularly important uh, here in Australia and mm. with, you know, the whole climate change thing happening and we're getting hotter. Um, yeah, that, that's really important, I guess. Um, and particularly for older people who mm. um, may also be living in older housing where um, they may be stuck indoors and uh, overheating inside or um, don't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a, another consideration that we, we do need to have. And does blood pressure differ with age as well? Your um, blood pressure generally gets higher as you age. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the next steps in that project are then looking at the... Um, uh, treatment intensity, the seasonality and treatment intensity, mm -hmm. because we do know from um, our PBS data that... That's the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Yes. Um, that uh, people tend to pick up more scripts towards the end of the year as part of the safety net. Um, so we do see seasonal trends in um, collecting scripts and... We're not sure if there is a related trend in treatment intensity that goes along with that or if people are treated generally the same across the year. Right, okay. And um, do you think do you think because um blood pressure is a, a, a risk factor for a lot of diseases, is there an effect of seasonality on those other diseases that you can get from it so is there an increase in in strokes or heart attacks or something following the seasons as well yes there is ah. um so the um increase in heart attack during winter is fairly well documented um there's also an increased risk of stroke during winter and um one of my colleagues in the georgia Institute china office has looked at um stroke incidents following cold snaps. So like we have heat waves, they have cold snaps where you get freezing temperatures for a um, you know, period of a few days. And during that time, they do experience more strokes. Damn. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then therefore adequately treating because of seasons is, is something that seems to be quite important then, I guess. I think so. Yeah. I'm well, still exploring that. Okay, <laughs> excellent. So, um, have you have you published anything on that? Uh, Not yet. yet. I I presented an abstract at the European Society of Cardiology in Paris in August um, on the uh, description of the seasonal um, trends. Um, finishing up that analysis at the moment, and and hope to submitting the manuscript by the end of the year. Okay, awesome. So uh, that in itself is a really, really interesting project. Um, and I had no idea that seasons would affect 
blood pressure or, or cardiovascular disease or anything like that. So super, super interesting. Um, we do have time if you want to talk about one more project. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular one that you'd like to talk about? Um, I think... The Club Meds Project, the Medication Adherence Clubs. Yes, okay. Okay. So um, that project came about as a result of my participation in the World Heart Federation Emerging Leaders Program in 2017. And what's that? So it's a... Competitive program, so you you need to apply for it. I encourage everyone to apply for it. (laughs) Um, You um, meet with 24 other researchers, clinicians, um, policymakers from around the world, and for a week you work together on a particular problem. Uh, the year I did it, we were looking at access to essential cardiovascular medicines, which is right up my alley. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for my year, we, we met in Cape Town and we um, worked in three groups looking at um, different aspects of ac- access to medicines. Um, so we had a group working on policy who did... Um, developed a program um, on ensuring uh, the uh, best evidence-based cardiovascular medicines were on the WHO essential medicines list okay. and also um, then also working on getting them onto national essential medicine lists as well. So um, those um, essential medicines lists are quite influential in determining which medicines countries buy for their population. So um, that that was quite important work in terms of is the drug even there. Mm-hmm. Um, our health services team were looking at the availability and affordability in pharmacies. So they were looking at pharmacies in Mozambique and in Fiji at other medicines in the pharmacy, how much do they cost? How much is that compared to um, an average income or a low-wage income? And then my group was looking at implementation, getting the medicine from the pharmacy to the patient. Um, Part of what we learnt during that week was for many places with um, very low resources, people had to take a day off work to travel into the healthcare centre to queue to pick up their medicines and there was a good chance that the the pharmacy would run out while they were standing in that queue. And given my background in health economics, I look at that and go... What a waste of everyone's time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's <laughs> there has wow. to be a better way of getting medicine to people than having everyone take the day off work to queue. Um, so we developed a pilot project, um, which is uh, implementing a strategy that has been used for um, HIV medication. Okay. Uh, so the medication adherence clubs have been used in... Um, South Africa for improving access and adherence to antiretroviral therapy. 
Um, and we thought, well, we can do it for ART. Surely we can do this for blood pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have um, a, a role model patient, so someone in the community who has, um, I think we, we went for their completed high school. Um, they had high blood pressure and they were um, adherent to their medication, so they were picking up their drugs um, and they were um, in regular contact with health services. And so we have that role model patient pick up the medicine for the group. Mm -hmm. And so then they can meet at a community setting like a school or a um, church or a town hall and measure each other's blood pressure and you know, distribute the drugs to the group and also just talk about, hey, I've tried you know, cooking with less salt. You know, it took a little while to get used to, but it's fine. You know, why don't you try this? How about we, you know? So um, having that engagement with the group setting to um, help improve adherence to blood pressure lowering medications. So um, we um, applied to the World Heart Federation for funding as um, at the end of the week, and we got. $25,000 and um, started this project. So we got our um, first patients in 2018 and we finished our follow-ups in May this year. We had a little bit of trouble. Um, the Nigerian elections were happening oh. at the same time as we were trying to finish our follow-up. Right. So people were um, unable to travel during that time. But we, you know. You got through we it. Adapted, we got through it. Um, and so now I'm in the exciting place where I've got some, some data to analyse to see if this intervention worked. That is awesome. So it's basically, this is totally inappropriate what I'm about to say but it's basically like a um funded drug mule I guess <laughs> that's, that's you got one person picking up medications for everyone and then distributing it yeah yeah but okay. in like a, a good way um yeah yeah in a good way <laughs> in a good way um, <laughs> that helps the community um yeah it, it, yes yes and no so <laughs> not obviously not quite like that but um yeah. Okay. So, so you're expecting that more people are taking their drugs at this point. What's the what's the main outcome? I guess that you're looking for. Okay. So the outcome we're looking for is uh, an improvement in medication adherence. It is yep. a self-reported um, adherence using using a visual analog scale. So. The patient reports on a scale from zero to a hundred how they think their medication adherence was. Um, of course, we expect no one to be at a hundred, um, but in the literature, that's been fairly well um, reported as as a, a good indication without having to go through pill counts. Okay, um, and then we've also looked at. Um, change in blood pressure okay cool all right 
So, okay, so it's interesting I find that you're using self-report in, mm. in this because there's issues with self-report in a lot Absolutely. of studies. Um, but I guess that's kind of the most feasible way of measuring it, I guess. Well, I, yeah, um, in, particularly in a, in a community setting, um, you, I mean, doing appeal counts feasible during a clinical trial and a, and particularly a well-resourced clinical trial where um, you can go through the, the kits that you've supplied um, the, the participant, whereas, I mean, for, for these people, this is, this is their usual medication um, and they probably don't want a stranger handling it. Of course, yep. <laughs> um, so for you know, practicality, say, and for acceptability for our participants, so we, we went with the um, self-report. Okay. Um, the, um, the blood pressure change or um, blood pressure measurement is, uh, I guess, it's a more objective measure. Yeah. Um, blood pressure is quite variable. Um, it depends what season you measure it in. It does. <laughs> so um, there may be changes in blood pressure that we observe that are not a result of treatment. They could be it's a hot day and your blood pressure is lower. Mm -hmm. um, but it's... It's a way of measuring um, an important outcome in this group. Um, cool. Okay. Yeah. So, so I guess what I'm thinking is with the the self report, you'll probably have a slightly higher adherence. I guess people will, will more likely report that they've adhered to the medication more. Is that right? Yeah, people do tend to um, paint a rosier picture when they're self-reporting. <laughs> yeah, okay. So so I, I guess the idea then is when you get your results, you, you can have a look and then, um, I don't know, if they've got really, really good adherence, you can probably adjust it by 10% and that's the actual <laughs> um, result. So hopefully that ends all well. Um, okay. I think we're almost out of time. So what are your future endeavors, I guess? What's what's the what's the next big thing for Emily? <laughs> <laughs> well, for the the next two months it's gonna be fellowship applications. Ah, oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be going for pretty much every grant I can. But, um, <laughs> that's the life of an academic. Excellent, yep. Um I'm working up the dose aid study, which I didn't really talk about today, into um, a bigger clinical trial because at the moment that's in um, pilot phase funded by Heart Foundation Vanguard. So I'll be looking at uh, how, how I scale that up and mm -hmm. how much money I need to ask to do it. <laughs> um, I think that's the main things. I guess when I finish this seasonality stuff, maybe I'll be designing a... Uh, a blood pressure seasonality trial and awesome. seeing if we can do and something then to... all your patients can go on holidays <laughs> <laughs> love it equatorial holidays that's right yeah yeah i think so um, all right and uh you have a twitter is yes, that right what's your twitter? twitter it's at emily r atkins um 
So I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I think I'm also Emily Harkins on LinkedIn. Excellent. Um, I think you can find me on Google Scholar or every other. Yes, you have uh, a, a number of uh, publications on there. Yes. Um, awesome. Okay. And if anyone has any uh, questions uh, that they'd like to send through, we have an email address. Uh, and Craig will tell you what that is because I have forgotten it uh, once he puts a end to this podcast. Um, but we also have a Twitter as well at health means what. Um, there will be some links at the end of this podcast uh, if you want to have a look either at Emily's Twitter or some of her publications. Um, otherwise, thanks everyone so much for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you, Courtney. It was great <laughs> Thank to be you. here. Thank you for being here. It is amazing to have you out of your busy schedule. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that chat between Dr. Emily Atkins and Courtney. Uh, as always, you can contact us uh, via email at meaningofhealth at outlook.com or on Twitter at healthmeanswhat. We look forward to speaking to you again and thanks for joining us. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.